It's mm. good. Thank you, Brian and Beth. And um, Beth is expecting here next month. Is that right, April? So we're glad for, for that. I'm glad, so glad for their singing, their testimony, and God's goodness to them for certain has, has uh, been redistributed as, as far as serving and ministering and trying to get others to experience the good hand of the Lord upon others as well. Very glad for that. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 tonight. Let's turn there. And talking with the teachers right before this, I mentioned preaching on heaven still tonight. And, and the challenge with preaching on heaven is just, it's, it's somewhat discombobulated to me. It's a hodgepodge. And, and I find that what I'm doing is, is just dealing with questions. And so the questions come, and so I'm dealing with questions. So I've got basically... Seven questions tonight, maybe a, a few more that, uh, that have been put in. And so we're going to try to answer. And some of it is overlapping with some things we've already said. But what I'm really thinking about doing and just trying to get the mind of the Lord is as we finish up this emphasis on heaven, just move right into the prophetical timeline. And because some of the questions that people have had, they have to do with really the millennium. And uh, then to explain that, I think it would be great just to explain and let's get a good Bible bird's eye view of the whole prophetic timeline. And that could be a great help to us because so much of it, in fact, the millennium is mentioned many, many times all throughout the Bible. Old Testament, um, that's really a lot of the emphasis and you, uh, you fail to understand that, you're going to fail to understand the preaching of the prophets. And so it's just, there's some good stuff there. So just, just pray. I want to get the mind of the Lord and want this to be worthwhile. But we're looking at heaven and two major questions that are asked in this series. I think no one's writing this one down, but I think this is where people have been over the years. And I remember being in Bible college and these kind of questions would come up and as far as you don't want to say them, but these are things that you kind of think. And one of those questions, one of the two is, one, is it for real? Is, is it really going to be something that's real or has it become like a dream and, and it's all fuzzy and, and you just feel good? It's kind of like when you go in for a procedure and they put you under or, or you have that twilight experience and, and people wonder, and, 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 and I've heard preachers talk about, we know this is what the Bible says, but sometimes wonder, is it going to be for real? And then the second thought is, is it for me? Is this really going to be something that I'm going to benefit from and I will enjoy? And I don't want to ruin all the surprises, but, but I think it's good for us to get right to it and say the answer to both of those is yes. Heaven is for real and yes, it's for you. Heaven is definitely for real, and God has prepared a heaven and a place for you, but you must be prepared to get there. That's the real question. Now, there's a lot of confusion, a lot of misinformation about heaven. I said before, I think too many times we get our theology of heaven and other things from movies and other uh, outside sources when we ought to get it from the Bible. 
And hopefully we're going to be able to lift a little bit of the fog that has caused much confusion. Now, I'm not going to talk as much about the confusion tonight as I am the curiosity. Because people are very curious. And I think um, we have questions. And, and some questions are, we may not get the answer till we get there. But there are things, as I mentioned last week, let's look at the, the sneak peek of what he has given to us. And if you were to Google the word heaven, I did it today, and you would get back 1,210,000,000 results. That's a lot. And uh, so there's a lot of information about heaven. There's a lot of questions about heaven. There's an abundance of wrong information about heaven. And so 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 21 comes to mind. Notice what it says. It says, prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. We must go to God's word to get our answers about heaven. After all, God's made it, prepared it for us. He's mentioned it over 500 times in the Bible. So the questions we ask about heaven, we need to be able to stick with the Bible. And that's ties in with our Sunday evening emphasis upon the authority of God's Word. One of the questions, and this will be number one, Brother Cherry is not here, or Brendan Cherry's not here, Brother Cherry is here, but you're not working the slides tonight, and so uh, we don't have the luxury of the outline to follow along, and um, you know, it's, I know that's really frustrating because I, I, I feel like somehow half stays awake to watch when the slides change to nudge the other people to let them know the slide changed so they can take their pen and write it down. And so I really have thought it would be good to get ahead of it if we just wrote it all down, gave it to you, and uh, just charge you for it, and then, um, then you wouldn't have to go through all the work. But that's not how it works. Number one, our out-of-body experience is real. Our out-of-body experience is real. How many, let me ask you this, how many know of somebody who had an out-of-body experience? You know of somebody who says, I had an out-of-body experience, meaning they were on the deathbed in a surgery and they experienced heaven out of body. They entered and uh, they had a, an experience. Does that make sense? Um, anybody know of anybody who, who's, who's had that? I'm not asking if any of you have experienced because that'd be too spooky right now for me to handle, so I don't want to know that. But there is, I did look up, the International Association of Near-Death Studies, I-A-N-D-S. And I was listening to some of their videos it, it's, it, it's, 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 it, they're out there. And um, they said there are over 900 accounts of near death or out of body experiences. Surveys taken in the US, Australia, and Germany suggest that 4 to 15% of the population have had NDEs, near death experiences. Thank you, Brother Brian. Every day in the U.S., 774 NDEs occur according to the Near-Death Experience Research Foundation. And so some of these stories 
They sound very convincing. Others sound absolutely crazy. Uh, not too long ago, you may have remembered the popular book that became a movie entitled Heaven is for Real. It was about the little boy, three, four years old, who experienced heaven and, and saw uh, his uh, sister in heaven, which was a result of a miscarriage. And, and, and so this whole uh, dynamic, um, Todd Burpo was the, uh, the dad and Colton is the boy. He's now uh, a grown, grown up, a grown man. And so, um, and, and they've had mixed things said about as to the legitimacy of it, but nonetheless, it became sensational. And people look at that and, and they'll listen to things. And I've, and I've watched some of the interviews of that and, and, and listening to um, things that he would say and, and it just could see the, the interview of the crowd. They, it, it's sensational. And so the question would be, are experiences like this, are they legitimate? Now we may say they seem so believable, but the real question we should ask is, are they biblical? And that's really where we've got to come back to. Is it biblical? What does the Bible say about near-death experiences or seeing heaven? Stephen in Acts chapter 7 saw into heaven and said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Acts 7 and verse 56. Paul described an incredible experience in 2 Corinthians 12 and verses 2 through 4 when he was allowed a glimpse into heaven. But he ends by saying that he couldn't even utter what he had seen. So what about them? The Bible speaks of such experiences, so they very well may have happened, but they're not expected. I'm not going to have to take every situation and just say impossible, it didn't happen. But I'm telling you, nowhere in the Bible does it say to look for them, to expect them, that we need them. What they do confirm um, however, is what the Bible teaches. And that is at least, the very least, that at death the soul separates from the body. And whether or not what someone has experienced here as a near-death experience is that, one thing we do know is that when a person truly dies, they're going to be absent from the body, they will be present with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 8. But they do get us thinking about the afterlife and eternity. But I say we need to be very careful. These experiences cannot be used as proof of our faith, nor can they ever be I told you so to others. And sadly, too often these experiences are lifted above Scripture and even contradict the Bible in some of these interviews. And we should remember that our Bible is not our final source of authority. It is our authority for what we believe and what we practice. Erwin Lutzer, who pastored in Chicago for many, many years, he says this, quote, Near-death experiences may or may not reflect the true conditions of life beyond death. They must be carefully evaluated to see whether they conform to the biblical picture of the hereafter. 
Now keep this in mind, end of quote. Keep this in mind. Our enemy is a fantastic counterfeiter. He would try to duplicate the same positive experiences for unbelievers that God gave to Stephen and Paul. He can. He can, he can reproduce, manufacture. One thing Satan can't do is give life. But he can create a facade. He can do all kinds of things. Think about this. Many cults, cults are birthed out of a vision of their leader. See, Jesus is our only reliable authority and the Bible is our authority. Let me give you a verse for this and that's Revelation 1, verses 17 and 18. Revelation 1, verse 17 and 18. I'm going to read that. We'll move to the second one. Revelation 1, verse 17. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and death. Keep your eyes on Jesus. The Bible's the authority. Don't get caught up with the sensational. Stay with what is true. Stay with what is, which is sure and accurate. Prove all things. Hold fast to that which is good. Here's a second question. And we touched on this last week, but um, we'll mention it again. Will we know each other in heaven? Will we know each other in heaven? Well, first of all, we will know more in heaven than we know now not less. And so if we would not, there's no, there's no reason that I can see to think that we will have some kind of blindness in heaven and when we can see with more clarity here. Our minds will finally be working at full capacity. Can you imagine that? We will never lose our keys. That's <laughs> hard to imagine. And when our wives tell us to find something in the pantry, we will be able to find it immediately. Won't that be a blessing? The Bible tells us that not only will we know each other, but we will also actually know people we have never met. Let me mention to you Matthew chapter 8. I think we read this one last week. Matthew 8 and verse number 11. And this was a verse that gave us a a little bit more insight in other areas. Matthew 8 and verse 11, I say unto you that many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. I've never met Abraham, never met Isaac or Jacob, but I will know them when I get to heaven. And so in heaven, we will know people perfectly. Think about it. How well do you really know people on earth? In heaven, there won't be one stranger. You know, your mom may have told you don't talk to strangers. Well, there will be no strangers in heaven. We will know everyone. Number three, here's a third question. <laughs> will there be marriage in heaven? <laughs> now, I chuckle because when I've been asked the question, I'm not sure if some are wondering if there will be no marriage in heaven so they can get out of their current one. Or if they're wondering because they're going to be sad, they're going to be out of their current one. So I think this is kind of double-sided when it gets asked. And some people, 
They can't imagine not being married to their spouse and others. They can't wait until uh, it's no longer, they're no longer bound. And so that's a, that's a two-edged sword there. But, but what does the Bible say about marriage in heaven? Well, let's go to Matthew 22. Matthew 22 and verse number 30. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. Now, just to be transparent, as I, I, I do a lot of studying asking questions. I ask what if, the why, and I'm trying to, to not just settle with just because the Bible says so, because somebody usually has a question. And so I'm, I'm usually asking those questions. But I will say when it comes to this, this is one of the things that I struggle with the most. And it's because I just don't quite understand it in the sense that if one of God's greatest gifts on earth is marriage, then why won't we be married in heaven like we're married here on earth? Now, the only way I know to answer this is that I trust God. And I believe that if marriage doesn't exist in heaven as it does on earth, then he must have something even better in store for us in heaven. Now, Randy Alcorn, he's written, a, I think, a very helpful book on heaven. If you were to, to get it, I think you'll find it to be helpful. And he's a little bit more dogmatic about some things that, than, than, than I would be. But he's still, he's willing to venture into trying to answer. But here's what he says about the matter of marriage. And I thought this was helpful. Earthly marriage is a shadow, a copy, an echo of the true and ultimate marriage. Once the ultimate marriage begins at the Lamb's wedding feast, all the human marriages that pointed to it will have served their noble purpose and will be assimilated into one great marriage they foreshadowed. The purpose of marriage is not to replace heaven, but to prepare us for heaven. Isn't that good? Number four, we talked about this one a little bit last week. What is the role of angels in heaven? And that's one of the, the big mistakes that we sometimes make, that the movies make. And we shouldn't be surprised when Hollywood gets it, gets it wrong. But, but we begin to think about heaven is that we'll become angels in heaven. But that's simply not the case. You'll not be an angel. You will not get wings. You'll not play a harp unless that's just something for fun that you will enjoy doing. But what is the function of angels on earth? And that's what we talked about last week that will help us. Well, they exist to guide us, to instruct us, to protect us, to comfort us. But none of that is needed in heaven. Remember, angels are also seen as messengers. In Luke chapter 1 and verse 19, remember the angel Gabriel comes to bring the message. and says, you know, I've got a, some good news for you. Um, who knows, and maybe in heaven, um, they'll still be delivering messages. I don't know. Maybe they'll, there'll be a, a heavenly post office, Brother Autry. One that delivers mail on time, you know. Stamps are free. <laughs> Never lose a letter. <laughs> Never go bankrupt. I mean, that's a thought. I don't know. But angels are also worshipers. 
And the Bible tells us that the angels will gather around the throne, worship the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're going to gather with them. Let me give you Revelation chapter 5, verses 11 through 14. And uh, these are good verses, and so I want to read these. Revelation 5, verses 11 through 14. And I beheld, and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beast and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. So that gives us an idea what they'll be doing. Number five. Number five. Will there be pets or animals in heaven? Will there be pets or animals in heaven? Number six, moving on. <laughs> We're going to give it a, a, a try here. Believe it or not, this is probably the question that I've gotten the most. Will my pet be in heaven? And then someone begins to describe the story of, of their dog or cat or horse or gerbil and, and wonder about Fido or Mittens or Snowflake and, and will they be in heaven? And the short answer is, I don't exactly know. I've always said mine would be, I don't know about yours, but mine would be, but that's all just speculation. But let me give you some details that might help you come to your own conclusion. We are certain that there will definitely be animals in heaven. Animals are mentioned 16 times in the book of Revelation. But among these animals, there will be no predators. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 6 and 7, you might want to jot down for that. Humorist Will Rogers said, if there are no dogs in heaven, then when I die, I want to go where they went. Now, that statement that he made was not based upon theology. If it was, he would have never said that. It was based upon sentiment. And however, it does reflect something biblical. And that is a God-given affection, I think, for animals. And it's not universal, but God has has given us animals. God gave them at the beginning and, and we're supposed to be under man's dominion. And certainly people can go to unhealthy extremes with their animals. Animals aren't nearly as valuable as people. But God is their maker and has touched many people's lives through them. Joni Erickson Tata, in her book about heaven, she said... Quote, if God brings our pets back to life, it wouldn't surprise me. It would be just like him. It would be totally in keeping with his generous character, exorbitant, excessive, extravagant, and grace after grace. Of all the dazzling discoveries and ecstatic pleasures heaven will hold for us, the potential of seeing Scrappy would be pure whimsy, Utterly, joyfully, surprisingly, superfluous. Heaven is going to be a place that will refract and reflect in as many ways as possible 
the goodness and joy of our great God who delights in lavishing love on his children. End of quote. And so it doesn't quite answer your questions, but it, it might give you something to think about. Number six, will heaven be boring? Why do we think that heaven will be a boring place? If you're bored with your relationship with God, it's not your fault. It's not his fault, rather, it's yours. If you're bored at church, it's not his fault, it's yours. You're interested in things you really care about. If you cared about the things of God, heaven would never be considered boring or mundane on this side of heaven. Nearly every Christian I've spoken with has some idea that eternity is an unending church service. We've settled on the image of the never-ending sing-along in the sky. Or one great hymn after another forever and ever, amen. And our heart sings when we think forever and ever singing those songs. That's it. That's the good news about heaven. And then we sigh and we feel guilty. We feel guilty that we're not more spiritual because we lose heart and we turn once more to the present to try to find all that we can in this life. I want to say again, heaven's not going to be boring because God is not boring. The only thing that bores us is when we have a ruptured relationship with God. The psalmist says that in his presence is fullness of joy. Are we so arrogant to believe that humans, we came up with the idea of fun? God is the one who created all of the good that exists in the world. Heaven's not going to be a boring place. Maybe there will be sports in heaven. I don't know. But the Bible says that one day God will create a new heaven and a new earth. So all of the things that we absolutely love and enjoy on the earth could possibly be a part of the new creation without the sin, without the effect of the curse. The, the point, however, is that much of our affection and love here is not a result of our relationship with God, but it's because of our relationship with the things of the world. Gary Larson captured a common misconception of heaven as one who wrote the Far Side cartoons. Remember those? And he's in it and one of them is a man with angel wings and a halo. He sits on a cloud doing nothing with no one nearby. He has the expression of, of someone as though they're marooned on a desert island with absolutely nothing to do. And then the caption shows his inner thoughts. Wish I would have brought a magazine to read. Well, sadly, this is what a lot of people think of when they think of heaven. It's just too much time boredom. But remember, that is a misconception. Whatever you could possibly imagine Whatever it is that would bring you satisfaction. Heaven, can't, we cannot even put a number to quantify how much greater heaven would be. You take whatever pleasure that comes to your mind. If I could do this, even if it's sin. Because you're, you've lost the essence of God. And God is greater. Grace is greater than sin. 
And whatever that is that's come from the curse that severed the relationship with him. And if you find in your thinking satisfaction from sin, just try to imagine that heaven's going to, going to even be much greater than that. But it's hard for our, our brains to be able to fathom. And so that's why we have to focus on what we have in the present, and that is an opportunity to experience God here and now. Let me give you a, a seventh thing tonight. What about suicide? What about deathbed repentance or the death of a child? Does suicide nullify heaven? A deathbed repentance is that certain? And what about the death of a child? Well, first we need to remember that we will all die and step into eternity. No one escapes death. And the Bible is clear. The only way we go to heaven is if we're prepared to leave this life. But what about special circumstances? What about suicide? What about a deathbed repentance or the death of a child? Let's deal with the easiest one to me first. And that is a deathbed repentance. You know what I mean by that? Someone who has denied God, denied God, rejected God, and on their deathbed moments before they take their last breath, they pray, and they pray the prayer of salvation. They put their faith and trust in Christ. And, and the question is, is this really legitimate? What about a family member who asked the Lord to save them right before they died? Maybe you've had that experience uh, with a family member. Anyone have a family member who would fall under that, that category? Yes, Brother Larry. Yes, uh, we prayed for Brother Larry's dad. Anybody else? Um, and, and so that sometimes is what comes into a person's mind. Can that really happen? And the answer is absolutely it can. Let me give you a Bible example. The thief on the cross. It was a deathbed experience vertically. Luke 23 and verse 42. And Jesus said immediately, you're going to be in my presence. And upon his last breath, he went right into the presence of the Lord. But I want you to remember, there are two sides to this. Yes, deathbed conversions can certainly happen, but they don't happen very often. The Bible says today's the day of salvation. Don't put off an all-important decision. There's no guarantee you'll ever have an opportunity later. Never. No one gets saved on their terms. If God ever allowed and granted the convincement and conviction and the working in someone's heart on their deathbed, that's God's good, gracious character. But somebody can say no to God one too many times and on their deathbed even be more hardened than ever before. Don't you put off what God says is to be done today. So what about suicide? If someone commits suicide, are they automatically disqualified from heaven? I want to tell you, the majority of people that I seem to ever talk to when it comes to this matter of salvation, they will, they will themselves claim to be saved. But if you ever propose, what if you committed suicide? Are you going to heaven? And they believe if somebody commits suicide, if they themselves commit suicide, then they are disqualified from heaven. But remember this. What is it that qualifies a person for heaven? 
It's not how they lived or what righteous acts they've done or unrighteous acts they've not done. The qualification for heaven is how you've responded to the free gift of salvation found in Jesus Christ. And so suicide, it's a, it's a terrible response. It's, it's, a, it's a terrible response to the overwhelming problems that a person faces. It's a person that has lost hope for a number of reasons, but it doesn't disqualify somebody from heaven because not committing suicide does not qualify somebody from heaven for heaven. Only Jesus does. Then what about the death of a child, the loss of a baby or a miscarriage? Now we have biblical evidence to believe and know that children and babies who die before an understanding of sin and salvation, they're graciously welcomed into heaven. Second Samuel 12, you remember David and Bathsheba? They lose their newborn child and David with a broken heart says in 2 Samuel 12 and verse 23, Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. In other words, David recognizes he's going to see his child again. The child cannot, will not come back to him, but one day he will see his child in heaven. How can we be certain that children go to heaven when they die? Well, small children, we're talking about children who we would say are not at the age of accountability. Children who don't have the ability to understand that an affirmative response to the gospel is the condition for salvation. They don't know why they need to be saved or they don't know that they must be saved. John MacArthur wrote on that and he said this, quote, little children have no record of unbelief or evil works. And therefore, there's no basis for their deserving in an eternity apart from God. As innocents, they're graciously and sovereignly saved by God as part of the atoning work of Christ Jesus, end of quote. It doesn't mean that what they do is not sin, that what they may do is not sin. It just means that they don't have the, if they're not at the age of accountability, they cannot be held accountable for rejecting when they're not understanding that they're rejecting or they're not able at that point to reject. So I like to say it this way, until they reach the age of accountability, they are safe until they're saved. They're safe until they're saved. Before a child knows how to choose between right, wrong, good, and evil in the sense of salvation, um, the blood of Jesus being applied, he or she is protected from judgment for sin by the blood of Christ. If one cannot reasonably accept or reject the payment for sin made by Christ, that person is accepted by God. In the Bible, infants, little children, others who cannot believe are neither told to believe or expected to do so. And this wouldn't necessarily have an age put on it. For a person who grows up and has mental deficiencies and is still not able to ascertain or discern are kept safe. Perhaps the most meaningful reference is Matthew 18 and verse 14. When Jesus is speaking there regarding the, this, even so it is not the will of your Father who's in heaven that these little ones should perish, and paraphrasing. But what about children lost through miscarriages? 
or abortions. Our Savior has compassion for little children and infants. And here's the truth. He's not willing that any should perish. And concerning the unborn, Psalm 139 verse 13 gives us understanding. And we have it on the authority of Scripture that a child is a person from the moment of conception. And based upon that truth, all these unborn ones, for whatever reason they have been unborn, will be taken directly to heaven by, their, by the Father. And one day, if we have believed in Christ, we're going to see our little ones again. And we have two little ones that we've never seen here that we'll see one day in heaven. Remember, our Savior has compassion for little children. He has compassion for infants. And He's not willing that not one of them would ever perish. None of them are insignificant. And the debacle in our society, we are in a mess. And we're going to have to move into, we're going to have to deal with some of the, the, the tragic stances that our country is taking on this matter of, uh, of the child pornography and, and the, and the uh, uh, invasion upon our children, divorcing our children from the parents and, and the, 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 the place that the school is taking in our public school system to undermine the home. Great, great, great danger. And so we're going to have to deal with that. But I want us to take consolation in the fact that our father is a father to the unborn and loves the, those that are little children, even though they've never seen the light of day in this world. They were, they, they, they were, their lives were cut off by abortion or through miscarriage. They were able to open their eyes in the presence of the Lord and they'll experience the reality of heaven someday or we'll be able to experience with them the reality of heaven someday with them. How old will children be in heaven? That was another question. I thought I would throw that in. The book of Revelation describes worship in heaven as an all-encompassing act involving everyone who is there. And so while there's no absolute answer provided in Scripture concerning this question, and there are different views to consider, some suggest that when we arrive in heaven, we'll all be mature in body and mind and spirit. And so that really messes with a lot of people as to what is mature. And, um, and, and more and more our society is showing that anyone before 70 lacks maturity. And, and so that, that's a hard one. But the book of Revelation, again, describes worship in heaven as an all-encompassing act involving everyone who's there. So I don't think that babies and infants are going to be on the sideline. I think whoever's in heaven will be of such an age so as to be able to participate in eternal worship of Almighty God. Now, others hold that if the millennium is during that time, there's reason to believe that children will be in heaven and allowed to grow up until they reach a mature age. And, um, and we'll talk about that when we, when we deal with the millennium. But I think that there is sufficient to me in my thinking that there will be a place so that everybody who is there will be able to participate in the worshiping of God. But here's the real question. Will you be there?
It's not going to do you any good to talk about it, to think about it, if you're not prepared to go. The most important question that could ever be asked is not one through seven, but it's number eight. Will you be in heaven? 1 John 5 and verse 13, These things have I written unto you that you may know. And what was it that he wrote unto us just a few verses before? He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. The difference is whether or not Jesus Christ is your personal Savior. If you have the Son, you have reservations made. And if you don't have the Son, then you're not ready to die. And you're playing a a very dangerous wait-and-see game with your life. You don't know how much more time you have. And every moment you've sat in church and you've heard a message, you've been confronted with truth and you've put it off and you've put it off and you've put it off, your heart is getting harder and harder and harder. And you're getting darker and darker so that no longer do you feel the steam. No longer do you feel the conviction. No longer do you feel the drawing. There is great statistics that have been made over the fact that those who get saved and they are confronted with the gospel as children and they go through life not getting saved until later in life, the fewer make fewer make decisions later in life for Christ because as time goes on the same bible the same holy spirit it's either going to draw you to him or by your rejecting him it's going to push you further away the same bible that can melt a heart can harden a heart the same holy spirit that can draw a person can leave a person alone Where you are tonight, where you stand tonight, is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? Is your name written there tonight so that if you were to take your last breath, if you leave here tonight and you leave this earth tonight, your body drops dead, they'll have a funeral for you, maybe say some nice things about you, but if you did not make, you could have prayed a prayer and not be saved. You could go through and do the motions, you can make a profession and not truly be saved. And they can say all the things that are nice about you at your funeral, but if Jesus is not real to you and in your life is your Savior, you'll spend an eternity, an eternity separated from Almighty God. Let's stand together, please.